Well, good morning, church family. Good morning. It is good to worship with you here today. Uh, if you're joining us here for the first time or the 50th time, we just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here and um, uh, glad to be worshiping together with you. My name is Dan Min, and I serve as the pastor here at uh, Alliance Christian Fellowship, and I'm excited to bring today's message to you. I ought to let you know that today's message is going to look and feel a little bit different. Um, God took me on a slight detour this past week in my preparation time, and as I was praying into this particular Sunday and this particular message, um, God took me on a slight detour. As many of you know, we've been going through this series here at ACF called Life in the Wilderness, and we've been looking at these different uh, ancient sojourners, these Old Testament uh, folks and, and groups of people uh, in Scripture that, that God brought into the wilderness uh, or they found themselves in the wilderness in one way or another, and God did some incredible soul-shaping work in their lives. And we've been make, making the argument that the wilderness is actually not a place that we should run from, but oftentimes it's where God most, most often shows up and, and shapes us and molds us into his likeness. And so uh, we've, been, we've been journeying through that. And this week we were supposed to dive into the story of Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. And a uh, great, fantastic story. And I was all ready to dig into that story and, and pull some things that God might be showing us, our church family, through that text. But then, as I opened up my Bible, God said, just, just hang tight. Just not, not so fast. In fact, I was feeling some of that on my way home from, from lunch last week, uh, right after church. Which, by the way, I was the only dude out with a group of girls out to lunch. So, fellas, thanks for leaving me high and dry, man. Well, I don't know what happened there. But i gotta, I got to say, ladies, for those of you who were out to lunch and putting up with me, thank you. It was a wonderful time. I had a wonderful time. But I remember driving home from lunch that, uh, that day and just feeling like a tugging in my heart that said, we're not quite done with this particular topic that we talked about. Last week, we looked at the life of David, and we discovered that God is in the business of developing our character in the wilderness. One of the things that God often does in the wilderness is he develops our character and as, as, we're, as we're wrestling with that, I was wrestling with God a little bit on the way back home, and I just sensed God saying, you're not quite done talking about character development. It is too important and vital of a topic to just gloss over in one Sunday message. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to push Elijah's story to next week. And I want to spend a few moments today talking about growing in godly biblical character growing in godly biblical character. Now, we're not going to revisit David's story. We're not going to unpack David's story per se. But um, and in fact, today, I don't even have a single story uh, to root this message in uh, uh, or a single passage. In fact, we're going to be jumping around to different places in Scripture here this morning. And so I said this message is going to feel and, and, and sound a little bit different, and, and that's a little bit of, of what I mean by that. And so we're going to display the text up on the screen. So if it's easier for you to read along on the screen, go ahead and do that, or you can flip over to the text references if you like, um, but uh, we'll be jumping around here just, uh, just a little bit. Friends, when it comes to developing godly biblical character, I want to talk to you this morning about five key components, five key components that, that I believe God wants to graft into our lives in order to grow in godly biblical character. Now, if we had time, I'd, I'd add on a, a whole bunch more. We don't have time for all of that, and so we're just going to stick with these five things here this morning. And each of these components boils down into an individual choice that we make. In fact, I think one might make the argument that character develops 
one good decision at a time. When you think about character development, character development happens one good decision at a time. One good choice you make at a time. In fact, the inverse is just as true. Character declines, character deteriorates one bad decision at a time. Like no one wakes up in the morning and all of a sudden they become immoral. They become, you know, just utterly depraved or no, like they, they don't fall into that overnight. Over time, character either develops or declines, deteriorates one decision at a time. Your choices matter. Your, your decisions in life matter. And so as I watch people grow in godly biblical character, they almost always exhibit these five choices. They always, almost always make these five choices on a regular basis. They use these five choices as sort of a grid for how they choose to live their lives. And the first choice is this. They choose identity over performance. They choose identity over performance. We, t we touched on this briefly last week. Uh, for those of you who were with us this, uh, this past midweek, our elders led us through a wonderful time of discussion on the issue of our identity. You see, when it comes to our identity, we've got to get it through our heads that who we are is far more important than what we do. In fact, when you put it through a, a kingdom lens, I will say God cares far more about who you are becoming than what you are doing, even what you are doing for him in the name of God. God loves when you serve him. God loves when you bow your knee to, to the service of Christ. He loves that. But more than that, the fragrance that, 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 that Jesus so enjoys is watching you develop into his likeness, watching you become like Jesus. God cares far more about who we are becoming than what we are doing. But the reality is our culture tries to sell us a different narrative. They say what you do is supreme. In fact, we don't, we don't really care about who you are. That's like frou-frou stuff. Like that's like, you know, for the, for the crazy psychologists, leave that to Dr. Phil, leave that to Oprah. Like when it comes to, to brass tax dollars, we don't care about who you are. We care about what you do. We care about what you can deliver. We care about what you can produce. We don't really care about who you are. And this is the difference between a gospel culture and a secular culture. You see, our culture communicates a vastly different message than a gospel culture. Our culture says your performance validates your identity, right? Your performance validates your identity. You know how I know that? Sit through any job performance review, and if you have a poor performance review, you'll know that it just about rocks your world. It rocks your world. Now, if you've never sat through a performance review, just think about the last project you submitted for a class or the last assignment that you submitted, or the last presentation that you gave, or the last exam that you took, and you received some negative feedback. You received some negative critique. You didn't get the grade that you anticipated. In fact, this last midweek, one, one, of, our, one of our brothers shared, like, man, I, I took a test, and I, I did terrible. It was, it was, and it just about ruined my day. And for some of us, it ruins our week. Right? Your identity is defined by your performance. I remember there was a point in my life where it took me a good couple, several days for me to get over a bad performance. Now, just to be clear, I didn't care about school enough to care about bad grades. I'm not talking about my academics. I'm talking about ministry. I didn't care about straight A's, but I did care deeply about ministry. And there was a season of my life where I was serving as a worship pastor. 
and, and that, that required me to get up every Sunday morning and to lead our congregation in worship, similar to what Hannah Yang does and our, and our entire worship team does, which, by the way, do they not do a wonderful job? Can we thank them for leading us in worship so faithfully week after week? Thank you, guys. So appreciate you, Robert, Wayne, Maggie, and all you guys who, who help out. But, but that, was, that was my world for a, an extended season of my life. I was the worship pastor of our church, and I would get up every Sunday, and I would lead worship. And if I felt like on a given Sunday... Worship felt flat, or, or it, it didn't go as planned, or people weren't really into it, which, by the way, is a terrible gauge for a worship leader, because, I mean, the average church worshiper worships like this. And so if you're trying to gauge, like, are they into it? Like, that's not a, that's not a great measurement to use, okay? But, but in, my, in my world, whatever that meant, if I felt like people weren't into it, I would feel like a complete failure. I would feel like a dud. In fact, I remember there were many Sundays where after I led worship, I would just crawl into bed. I wouldn't even have lunch. I would just crawl into bed and just try to sleep it off because I didn't want to think about it. It just it, it, it bothered me to my core so much that I didn't even want to think about it. Even today, even today, to be honest, I need to battle my inner voices after a Sunday morning after a Sunday of preaching and ministering. Because if I don't hear enough, oh, Dan, that sermon was so powerful. Oh, Dan, that sermon was so fire. That was so powerful. That really spoke to me. If I don't hear enough of that, which, by the way, I'm not fishing for compliments, okay? Please hear me. This is not me saying, come on, we're, you know, like, like bathing on me. That, that's not what I'm saying. I use this as an example to bear my soul before my church family here. If I don't hear enough of that, in the absence of that, I begin to fill in the blanks with my own self-talk. And guess where that leads me? It's never anywhere good. It always leads me down a path of self-degradation and incredible total discouragement. I suck as a, as a pastor. I'm terrible as a, as a human being. I mean, it sounds silly, but how many times do we do that in our journeys in our lives? where we miss the mark and somehow that bad performance indicates our very core identity and influences what we think about ourselves and who we are. But you see, gospel culture communicates something fundamentally different. Gospel culture says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That's our starting point as the people of God. The gift of God that we have been saved by grace. And this is not a result of your works or your performance or what you do so that no one may boast. In other words, the very foundation of who you are has nothing to do with what you do, but it has everything to do with what God in Christ Jesus has done for you. It has nothing to do with our performance but it has everything to do with what God has done for us. You see, that's gospel culture. But then notice what Paul says next here. You know this, right? We studied this last semester in Rooted and Grounded. He goes on and he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. He addresses the issue of our identity here. He says, you are God's workmanship. You are his handiwork. You are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. So check this out. Our culture says... What you do validates who you are, but gospel culture says what you do flows out of who you are. It doesn't define who you are, but it flows out of who you are. And in, your, in light of your identity, Paul says, you are God's workmanship. You're his handiwork. 
You were created in Christ Jesus. In light of your Christ-centered identity, you are then to do the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Gospel culture flips our cultural narrative completely upside down. People who grow in godly biblical character understand the value of choosing their God-given identity over man-made performance. Choose identity over performance. The next choice is that people who walk and grow in godly biblical character is the choosing of right over easy. Choosing right over easy. Now, this might seem like a no-brainer, but I think it's worth unpacking here for just a quick moment. People who grow in godly biblical character generally choose what is right over what is easy. Whenever I counsel people and they're dealing with a tough decision or a tough choice to make in their life, whether big or small, I would usually counsel them by saying, always do what's right, never do what's easy. Always do what's right, never do what's easy. The truth is, your tendency and my tendency, the human tendency, is to travel down the path of least resistance. You know, we, we, we are creatures who are drawn to comfort like a moth to the flames. And anything that's hard, we run from. We abandon ship. But if you've walked with Jesus any length of time, you'll know that the path that he walked on was anything but the path of least resistance. If you walk with Jesus any length of time, you'll know that the path that he walked on was anything but easy. In fact, you hear Jesus telling his disciples things like in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We just sang about that just a few moments ago. Take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Does that sound like the path of least resistance? Does that sound like the easy path? And then shortly thereafter that, in verse 57, we read, as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I'm willing to follow you wherever you go. I'm with you till, 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 till you know, death do us part. I'm with you. And Jesus is like, awesome. But I ought to tell you, foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, I've got nowhere to lay my head. Are you sure you still want to follow me? Are you sure you're still in? You see, the true test of character is at the point of difficult decision. Will you choose what is right over what is easy? Can, can, I, can I say something here just that might, might be commonly known but often forgotten? This character development stuff is hard. It ain't easy, and it ain't supposed to be. You know, so, some of us think like, oh, character development sounds good, sounds good, right? Like, I, sign me up, sign me up. Do you know what you're signing up for, right? Like, and that's essentially what Jesus is saying here to his followers. Look, I want you to develop, I want you to grow in godly biblical character, but don't think, look, look, Jesus never said, hey, follow me, and I'm going to make it real easy on you, okay? It's, it's going to be like a, a long-term vacation, like a lifetime vacation to Bermuda. Like, you're going you're gonna to get all the perks and the benefits of following me. It's going to be a walk in the park. Heck, you know, this whole discipleship thing, don't worry about it. It'll work itself out, you know, like, it'll, It'll work itself out. You know, you could do this in your sleep. Don't sweat it. Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, he says quite the opposite. In John chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, Jesus speaks to a group of disciples, and he's laying out some hard truths. He's laying out some hard things that his disciples are having a hard time swallowing. They're like, I don't know about this. I don't know if I can subscribe to this. I don't know if I can follow this. And in verse 66, in chapter 6, we find a bunch of them begin to walk away. It says, after Jesus shared some of his teachings, after this, many of his disciples turned back 
and no longer walked with him. So what does Jesus do? He turns, he turns around to his 12 now. And he's like, are you, you guys going to walk away too? Are, are, you, are you guys, is, is this too hard for you to process as well? Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, where, am I, where are we going to go? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter, at this critical moment, is choosing what is right and true and good over what is easy. What would have been easy for him to say, peace out, Jesus, this stuff, yeah, it's a little too hard. I'm not sure I can, I, I'm not sure I can follow all of this to a T. I'm not sure I can measure up. But Peter and the 12 say, no, 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 look, we know this is hard. We know it's supposed to be hard, but we know it's right. We know it's good. And so we choose you, Jesus. We choose you. See, people who walk in godly biblical character rarely choose what is easy, but they choose what is right time and time again. I want to jump to the third choice here, the third choice that people of character make is they choose integrity over gifting. They choose integrity over gifting. Now, this is slightly similar to the first two points, but I think it's worth keeping as a separate point here because of the times that we're living in. And what do I mean by that, the times that we're living in? I don't know if you've noticed this, friends, but we are living in a world right now where we are quick to celebrate and elevate gifted individuals. We worship them. We think the world of them. I don't know how many more TV shows we need to showcase people's gifting and their talent. American Idol, I believe they're, they're, they're on 19 seasons now. Like, surely there aren't that many great singers in our country that we're going that, that long. 19 seasons of American Idol. The Voice, The Voice in the UK, The Voice in Australia, The Voice in Brazil, right? Like, America's got talent. Britain's got talent. Heck, you got talent. I got, we all got talent, right? Like, let's all showcase this. We live in a world where we love to showcase and elevate gifting. The truth is, friends, we are a celebrity-driven, fame-worshipping, idol-chasing generation that has sacrificed all matters of integrity at the altar of popularity and gifting. Can I say that again? We are a fame-worshipping, idol-chasing, celebrity-driven culture where we have taken all matters of integrity and character and we have placed it squarely on the altar of popularity and gifting. And friends, this is a dangerous, dangerous path we are on. It's a dangerous path we're on. If we're honest with ourselves, come on now, just, just, just level with me here this morning. If most of us were honest with ourselves, most of us would much rather be likable than truthful. Most of us would much rather be successful than faithful. Most of us would rather be charismatic than caring. Most of us would much rather be worshipped and admired than quietly serving the least of these. And so what do we do? Well, we end up paying little to no attention to matters of integrity in our lives. And we focus almost entirely on gifting. Now listen, I am all about gifting. I want to celebrate gifts. In fact, the Holy Spirit of God gives us spiritual gifts 
I'm not trying to shun gifts or shun uh, uh, talents or anything like that. Uh, the Holy Spirit pours out gifts upon us. But listen now, this is important. If your pursuit of gifting outpaces your pursuit of integrity, you are running straight into a burning building. You will crash and burn. I don't know how many more stories we need of Christian leaders, pastors, ministers who have fallen from great heights, all because they have neglected integrity in the name of gifting. We love gifting. We love high-performance people. We love big names. I mean, like, who, who do you listen to? Uh, what, what, what churches and pastors do you listen to on podcasts? What, what things, what, what uh, churches, uh, apps are you subscribed to? What kinds of people? Like, it's, it's the names that everyone knows, right? Like, and and, and there's, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But I think that reveals something of the heart of our culture that is deeply disconnected with the heart of God. Because what ends up happening is we start walking down that path and we start celebrating names, we start celebrating fame, we start celebrating popularity and gifting, and oh no, what happens? These leaders fall from great heights and then we're, we're left wrestling with what was really going on there? Issues of integrity. We're talking about issues of integrity. See, see that for me, that part of what, what appeals to me about David's story, we touched on it last week, but David's story in the Bible that's so compelling is his rags to riches story. If there's any rags to riches story, it's this guy, David. David goes from a no-name shepherd boy, or the forgotten son of Jesse. Remember that? Samuel shows up to Jesse and is like, hey, I think God has one of your sons uh, to be anointed as king. And Jesse lines up all of his sons. And then Samuel goes down the road, and he's like, no, 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 this isn't it, this isn't it, this isn't it. This isn't it. Jesse, is this it? And Jesse's like, oh, crap, I forgot. I got another son in the back. He did, he's, he's, he's watching sheep in the back. Hey, hang on, hang on, let me, let me go get him. I don't think he's the one. Samuel's like, no, this is the one. This is, this is, this is the guy. This unlikely candidate to be the king of Israel would rise to prominence to be the most pivotal king in Israel. And not only that, he would pave the way for the king of kings, King Jesus. And it happened because David chose to walk in the path of integrity. I want you to notice, and, and we're not going to unpack his story in great detail here, but you need to know this. David never tried to showcase his gifting. He never got to a place where he wanted to showcase to the world and prove to Jesse, prove to Samuel, hey, I got what it takes. Put me in, coach. Like, you'll be, you'll be happy. You'll be pleased. David never tried to elevate his gifting. He didn't try to increase his platform. He didn't try to increase his social influence. He didn't fight for the top positions. He consistently and faithfully did what was right in the eyes of the Lord day in and day out. And even when he sinned, because you're like, oh, hang on now. Like, I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture of David. You, we know this. David screwed up. He, he messed up. He had, his, he had his laundry list of sins. But even in his sin, he managed to come before God in a posture of humility and repentance spoke greatly to his moral integrity. It was in that place God said, this guy, even in his brokenness, is a man after my own heart. People of godly biblical character choose integrity over gifting over and over and over again. But they also choose humility over pride. You ever notice that proud people don't ever seem to be aware of their need for character development and character growth? Right, like, you know, they, they are intuitively, they seem intuitively opposed 
to character development. After all, why, why would they need to grow in any area of their lives when they've got it all put together in every area of their lives, right? Like that, that's how people, that's how people marked by pride think. Like it's like, I, I got it all together. I don't need to, I need to grow in this area. But, but people who grow in character and in wisdom exhibit a kind of humility that recognizes that I've got a lot of growing to do. I've got a lot of learning to do. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people I've come across the people that I respect most in my life are people who are well advanced in years, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond, who have this posture of humility. I don't know. It is a work of God in their life of, of consistently choosing the way of humility over pride. But, but even in, at that stage of life, they're like, Dan, I'm st- God is still taking me to school. I am still learning about different aspects of what God is doing in my life. I'm still being formed and shaped into his likeness. There's something deeply profound about people of character who choose humility over pride. Many of you know that here at ACF, we're, we're a student-led church. And, and being that we're a student-led church, we have a process of, of nominating and, and, and selecting new student leaders every year. And we're currently in that process right now. And, um, and there are... In this, in this process of trying to sort through uh, who are the people that God would have to lead our church in this next season of our, uh, the next chapter of our lives, there are specific qualities and characteristics that we look for in search for our next leaders. And believe it or not, skill level is not at the top of the list. In other words, you don't need to be the most skilled person for the job or the role. or You don't need to be the most gifted person in the room. You don't need to be the most talented, the most knowledgeable, the most competent in order to be a leader in our church. What we want to know is at the end of the day, do you have a spirit of teachability? Do you have a spirit of teachability? Do you exhibit the kind of humility that says, I don't know, but I want to grow? I don't know. I don't know how to do this. I don't know everything about the Bible. I don't know this, but I want to grow. I don't know, but I want to grow. And the reason we feel so strongly about this is because God seems to care so deeply about issues of humility. In fact, we read in James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then again in 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? Humility. Clothe yourselves with all humility toward one another. For God, there it is again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, when I read that, I don't know about you, friends, but I know one thing's for sure. I don't want to end up on the opposing team against God. I don't want to be on the other side of God in that equation. I don't see in what universe that that would end well for me. I don't know in what kind of possible scenario that that would be a winning proposition for me. God opposes the proud. Scripture is unequivocally clear here. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you know why God so opposes the proud? I think you can answer this question in two ways, and both ways would be accurate. You can say that God so opposes the proud because he despises the sin of pride. He despises the sin of pride. In fact, whenever you see in scripture people choosing something other than God, it's usually motivated by pride. Pride is at the root cause of a lot of these 
these kind of wayward ways of the people of God. The sin of pride often leads people down paths that ultimately lead them away from the heart of God. And so God opposes the proud because he hates the sin of pride and what it does to us and what it does to people. But I think you can also say the prideful people are set in their ways. They're immovable. They're, they're obstinate and fiercely stubborn. Maybe you know people like that. Don't go on and pointing people in the room now, okay? But maybe you know people who are like fiercely stubborn and prideful, and they got their heels dug into the ground. And there are times in Scripture where God's response to people like that is not to fight them, but it's to hand them over into their pride. It's to hand them over into their sin. There are times when God will simply release us and hand us over to our depravity. I think about Paul's words in Romans chapter 1 where, where we read that Paul talks about how God gave them over to their sinful desires and their shameful lusts. I, I, I think about Pharaoh in the book of Exodus where God gives Pharaoh over to the, to the hardness of his heart and to the callous nature of his heart. And so when scripture says God opposes the proud, this could very well be a kind of self-imposed opposition where prideful people impose this opposition of God on themselves because they are so, where, where you push God so far away that God has no other choice but to give you over to your sins. Either way, you don't want to be on the other side of God when it comes to the issue of pride. People who grow in godly biblical character stand before God with a soft, tender heart, a heart that says, I'm willing to do whatever it is, God, that you're asking me to do. They remain teachable and willing to learn. You see, people of character choose over and over and over again, humility over pride. Now, I realized each of these points, man, I, I, I can easily spend a whole Sunday just unpacking this because humility and pride, I mean, it, it boils down also to how we are relating to one another. Pride isn't just a matter of me thinking that I know it all, that I've got it all. Pride manifests its, its, its venom and poison in our relationships and how we relate to one another, right? I, I mean, you, you read Romans chapter 12, the, the, the end of Romans chapter 12, and Paul lays out like, hey, serve one another in great zeal. Like, like, like don't, don't consider yourself high, that could, like associate with the lowly and, and, and serve the least of these. I mean, that's the message of Jesus, right? And so again, we can unpack this in great detail, but, but the point is, People who grow in godly biblical character over and over again choose humility over pride. And I want to touch on this last one, and we'll wrap it up here. People who grow in godly biblical character, the fifth choice that people make is heart over behavior. Heart over behavior. You know, as, as I was going through this list and as I was processing this with the Lord, you know, I, I felt that... Um, you know, you look at this list, and some might argue that we can go through this entire list and determine that anyone can grow in character. This isn't like, this isn't a biblical thing. This, you know, so one can make that argument. Whether you believe in God or not, as long as you choose identity over performance, right over easy, integrity over gifting, humility over pride, you can grow in character. You, you can make the argument that there's nothing that makes this uniquely Christian. In fact, you can find this in business corporations and any kind of club or organization can subscribe to these principles. But the last thing I want to do is stand up here and preach to you a self-help message. The last thing I want to do is stand up here and, and preach to you a message on self-improvement. 
a better way to a better you. <laughs> you know, that's, there are enough literature out there for you to dig into. That's not what this is about. When we're talking about growing in character, let me just clarify, we're not talking about a generically good character. We're not even trying to be morally sound people. That's not the goal. That's not the goal. At the end of the day, we're trying to be like Jesus. Jesus is the end goal. He is our true north. He is the final destination, and he is the journey to that. We're ultimately trying to be like Jesus. We're pursuing godly biblical character, the kind of character that would look like Jesus, that would feel like Jesus, that would smell like Jesus. And the way we get there is by allowing the Holy Spirit of God to change our hearts from the inside out. That's the only way that this stuff is going to genuinely happen. Because a lot of this, you can kind of fake. You can kind of fake it till you make it. But you can't fake heart change. You know what I mean? Like, you, you can appear morally elite, but you can't, you can't fake heart transformation. When God gets a hold of your heart and flips it upside down, there's no, you don't fake, you don't pretend that that happens or doesn't happen. It simply happens. Becoming like Christ requires a complete heart transplant where we are so occupied with the thoughts of Christ that we become conformed to the image of Christ. This character development stuff we're talking about requires a radical change from the innermost parts of who we are. I want to give you one last passage here, and then we'll wrap it up. In fact, worship team, you guys can come on up and get ready to close this. In Matthew chapter 23... I think we have it up here on the screen for you to look along with us. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus, again, is laying out some hard words. Which, by the way, um, <laughs> this is just, let, let this be a, a, just a quick teaser for where we're going next. After we come back from spring break, uh, we're going to be starting a, a, a brand new series. Uh, just, just looking at some of the hard teachings of Jesus. Like, you know, Jesus didn't, didn't give teachings of flowers and daisies and roads like it's a walk in the park. There are very affirming, encouraging messages of Jesus, but when you look at the red letters in your Bible, some of them are just, they're brutal. I mean, they're, they're hard to process, they're hard to digest, so much so that people literally walked away from him in the flesh because they just, they couldn't receive his teaching. And here we are as Jesus followers, like, we don't get the privilege to cherry pick and pick and choose what we follow and what we, we're like, we like that teaching Jesus, like, but that, let's just, let's wait till that. That's like, no, there, there's some hard things that Jesus says. Right here, Matthew chapter 23, he's got some hard words for the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, matters like justice and mercy and faithfulness, matters of the heart. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I love that. Just the word pictures there. You blind guides, you're so busy trying to strain out a gnat and you end up swallowing an entire camel. Like, are you, are you, are you missing it? He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. One last time, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Friends, character development is a matter of God changing our hearts. Only a heart that is fully surrendered to God will truly be able to grow in godly biblical character. Sometimes I think we are so image driven and image oriented that I wonder if these would be the words that Jesus has for the church if he came today. If these would be the kinds of words that Jesus would have for the people living in this day and age in our culture. These are like whitewashed tombs try to appear all put together and all right on the outside, but I'm not after that. I'm after your heart. Would you open up your heart to me? And some of us are so deathly afraid to go there with God. Some of us are so afraid and nervous to open up that part of our lives, open up a heart fully and say, my heart is yours, every part of it because somehow we think we're safer holding back a piece of my heart. God has 80%, but let me just hold on to this 20%. No, 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 that's not how the economy of God works. God says, I need your whole heart. A heart that is fully surrendered is able to grow in Christ-likeness. So as long as we hold a piece of our hearts back, you're only really robbing yourself and so I, I wonder, I wonder this morning, could we, could we surrender our hearts before our Heavenly Father? And, and, and might we say, oh Jesus, make me more like you. Make me more like you. Shape my character that I might reflect more of who you are. God, today, help me to choose identity over performance. Help me to do what is right over what is easy. Help me to choose integrity over gifting, humility over pride. And oh God, help me to ultimately surrender all of my heart so that you change my heart and not just my outward behavior. In fact, church family, can we just, can we just come before our God here just in this moment and bow in prayer with me? And would you come before God and say, God, I give you my heart.